Be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Continuing at verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who were like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed and he will make a sudden end of all those who live on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. The second reading is taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, and verses 1 to 11. And it reads, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night, or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. gospel reading today is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Please stand for the gospel reading. 
Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on the journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, or talents, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the one who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not gathered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. He here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Once again, Father in heaven, we assemble in the name of your Son, Jesus, to hear your word, to come to your table, so that we can be dismissed into the world. And we pray that. Uh, 
this time you would strengthen us, that you would empower us and encourage us to be faithful, obedient servants, expecting expecting your approval at the end of the age or the end of our lives. And Lord, may we all long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Amen. So we have um, a parable that's actually one of four. These are four parables that come after 20, Matthew 24, in which Jesus talks about some very big, dramatic, and unfortunately for some of us, exciting events that will happen at the end of the age. I don't know what it is about disaster or tragedy or famine and war that does certainly excites some people, but it does. Um, there'll be signs in the heavens, earthquakes, and uh, these are frightening. And uh, these are things that don't necessarily happen to us in everyday life. And then the four parables that follow go from the big, the, the dramatic, the apocalyptic, to the everyday and the mundane, the in the ordinary. And sometimes it's hard to keep these two things in tension. You might, they might seem almost um, like, a, like a paradox. I think our readings help us, hopefully help, help us um, with living, uh, living in the midst or living through, you might say, the tension that uh, we have. Again, on one hand, it's this blessed hope. But the blessed hope in the coming of the Lord, whether it's in Jewish or Christian understanding, comes with uh, drama and it comes with suffering uh, and it comes uh, in a way that will bring uh, great difficulties. And by the way, if one thinks we're going to miss these things because there's going to be a rapture, I can say that uh, in virtually all cases throughout the scripture, that the righteous always suffer with the wicked. The righteous always suffer with the wicked. And I don't mean to offend anyone, but I think the idea of a rapture before the wrath of God is poured out on this world is not very convincing. It's certainly not very convincing. And so, how do we live in the tension? How do we remain faithful and productive and creative, yes, in, the, in our daily lives, and yet wait for this blessed hope? And again, the readings remind us, because while we can, yes, sometimes intellectually be aware that, yes, there is an end of the age, and there is the return of the Lord and ultimate messianic redemption, a new heavens and a new earth. 
As we read in our first reading from the Old Testament, very easy to become complacent. Yes, it's very easy to slip into the ordinary, to the routine, to the daily, and somehow lose the big picture. And of course, Paul in first in writing to the church in Thessalonica, he's writing to a church that is full of messianic excitement. They're waiting for the coming of the Lord. So much so, as we all know, that many have stopped working and they're walking around looking for the signs, living on, you might say, sitting on the edge of their seats, just waiting for, yes, for the next prophecy to be fulfilled and for Jesus to come back. And of course, this has created confusion and passivity. And Paul has to write to correct, yes, his community. And finally, we have the teaching of Jesus, the parable. And this parable, like the others, the other two before it, is not only telling us to be ready, but it is actually telling us how to be ready. This was a nice point that uh, John made for us in the Wednesday morning service. How to be ready. What does readiness look like? And of course, Jesus could have easily told us, or perhaps given us a checklist, you know, and say, to be ready, it means to do this, 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 and this. But Jesus knew something uh, long before, you might say, anthropologists or sociologists or neurologists yeah, have only discovered in the last few decades or the last century or so. Yeah. Human beings, we all live by stories and we're motivated by stories and we're motivated by a narrative. And when the story is, there's a certain um, cleverness to the story or there's a certain rhythm to the story or a certain, even a certain poignancy, a certain beautiful uh, beauty to a story, yes, it has even a more powerful, powerful impact than just receiving a set of instructions. That's why Jesus does a third, more than a third of his teaching in stories and in parables. Yes, so that we can, you might say, chew on the story, meditate on the story. This year we can see it in another light. And from that we can, we can um, be inspired or directed by the Holy Spirit. But two or three years ago, we read it a little bit differently. And we read it uh, in a different way. But the Lord still used it to inspire us, yes. And of course, when Jesus is telling stories, he's just doing what other teachers of his day are doing. The, the we might say the Jewish way of commenting on the Bible was to tell stories, not simply to give a theological lesson, right? Not simply to talk about something in the abstract with maybe lots of footnotes, right? It was not something what we would perhaps do today, something, something, uh, intellectual. 
So Jews, at the time of Jesus, yes, would approach, you might say, paradoxes in the text, God's mysterious ways, things that might seem contradictory. Yes, they would explain these things uh, with stories. Yes, what is the role of grace as opposed to the role of works? What, um, what does it mean, yes, to be holy? Or what is it, how does one imitate God? So all of these things could be explained in long sermons. And in our system today, we'd, we'd write theological textbooks. But they understood that stories, yes, that people can relate to are much more powerful. And there is a parable, it's a Jewish parable, told at the time of Jesus, that in many ways is very similar to what we, we read this morning from Matthew 25. And the parable goes like this. There once was a king, and a king had two gardeners. And he told the gardeners, I'm going away on a journey. And the gardeners said, okay. And one gardener said, well, the king is away on a journey. I think I'll change everything. I'll plant new grass, I'll plant new flowers. When he comes back, he's gonna be really happy with me. And the second one said, you know, the king's kind of a tough guy. I better not touch anything to the point that, you know, the flowers died and the grass withered and whatever. Now the king returns, and of course we can guess the ending. He's happy with one, delighted with one, and uh, very upset with the second. Now why was that parable told? The parable was told because Jews at the time asked a really good question. And the good question they asked comes out of Deuteronomy chapter six. And as they heard the scripture being read uh, in the synagogue or uh, in other venues, yes, you read verses in Deuteronomy chapter six that say the following. I'm starting in 6.1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you may live. So here's a command to fear the Lord. Or here is God is telling Israel they should have the fear of God. But then you get to the famous few verses later, you have another verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all all of your strength. Now, if you were listening to these, wouldn't you, shouldn't you ask the question, well, what is it? Is it love or is it fear? Should we fear God or should we love him? I mean, because doesn't it seem like a contradiction? It's a tension. I can't figure it out. And again, the response was not to write 465 pages. 
with 238 footnotes trying to, in a maybe philosophical, theological way, explain all this. But it is explained in this short parable that I told you. And the conclusion, what I didn't tell you, is that servant number one, or gardener number one, they, the parable tells us he is a man, yes, who has love and fear. The second gardener is a man who only fears. And the understanding of the parable in that context is very simple. Yes, that one has to have both. That love is what motivates. Love for God, in this case, is what will cause us to be creative or faithful, yes, to maybe take risks for God. Because after all, gardener number one, he wasn't sure when the king came back if he had liked his choice of flowers, right? But he takes a risk. And at the same time, he's fear. Gardener number two, the man with fear, yes, yeah, that fear is not productive. It's not creative, right? It does something and it is necessary in our lives. Um, and it, the story actually picks up on a verse, it doesn't quote it, but it picks up on a verse in Exodus. Because in Exodus it tells us at, the, at Sinai, when, Moses, when God begins, wants to appear to his people, it says the following. It says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. This is when God is speaking from the mountain. God has come to you to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So fear has its role, right? Fear, the fear of God, which by the way is not quite as we understand it. I once heard it described like this, which I think was a very brilliant um, way of uh, putting it. The fear of God is nothing more than a full appreciation of who God is. Right? A full appreciation of who God is. Right? And sin has consequences. Right? So the fear of God can lead to the fear of sin, yes, which can save us and others a lot of trouble and a lot of suffering. Both are necessary, right? Love to motivate, fear to restrain. Yeah, right? Because with only love, 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 and no fear, right? With only the love of God and not the justice of God, right? There's a distortion. And of course, it's distorted the other way. I think maybe all of us know people who perhaps fear God, but don't really love him. Right, they, the motivation um, is out of fear. So Jesus tells his parable, and I think there's a similar context. Right, I think that there is this uh, this uh, the two issues of love and fear. Of course, on top of telling his community, yeah. Um, I may be delayed, and in my delay, I don't want you to be complacent. I don't want you to take things for granted. 
Yes? I want you to be productive, creative, and faithful. Yes? And the parable, all of these parables that we read in Matthew 24, starting in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, can easily be applied to the end of our lives. To, or to the preparation for the end of life. Because if the Lord doesn't come back, all of us, according to Paul the Apostle, in Romans and Corinthians, all of us will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer for our works. Yes, for the things that we've done. And in this case, the things we haven't done. The very Jewish concept that we will be judged according to our deeds. But Jesus, you might say, ups the standards because here there's a judgment for things that we could have done, but we didn't, okay? We could have done, but we didn't. So the king, or the, the, the master of the estate, he's going to do what? He's going to take a risk. And isn't it, isn't it, um, maybe mysterious or isn't it overwhelming to think that the God of the universe who doesn't really need us wants to involve us, wants to partner with us right from the beginning, Adam and Eve, Abraham, well before Abraham, the nations who rebelled and didn't cooperate, Abraham, Israel, the church, that God invites us to participate, yes, in his work, yeah, his works of, uh, work of redemption, right, and healing and restoration. It's pretty mind-blowing, yes, to be given that privilege and to be given that, to be given that invitation. So, Servant number one gets five bags of gold. Off he goes. Okay. God takes her in the parable. Yes. The, the owner of the estate takes a huge risk. He's giving the servant a lot of money. And the second servant gets less. But the risk is somewhat calculated, is it not? Because the parable says that they are receiving this gold or this money according to their ability. Now they come back, they put the master's money to work. They take a risk. Obviously, again, there was some creativity involved. And it doesn't give us their motivation. Yes, why did they do it? What was their incentive? Was it because they loved the master? Was it because, hey, somebody is giving me a space or an opportunity to be creative and to exercise my gifts? Somebody's putting a lot of trust in me, right? Or was it just the satisfaction of doing well and in this case, yeah, pleasing the master, doesn't say. 
We don't quite know the motivation, but all of those can be motivations for us. And by the way, it is not the worst, most horrible thing to think of serving the Lord, yes, for the sake of a reward. The only problem is, is, is where, what our expectations are. If we expect to serve the Lord and my contemporaries or the society or the church or my family, if they are to be the ones who reward me, then that's contrary to the teachings of Jesus. But if we expect or we have faith that whether it's in this life or in the world to come, God will reward us, there's nothing wrong with that. And you might remember that uh, in, in the Gospels, Mark 10, Matthew, Luke, that Jesus, when he's talking about the cost of discipleship, always tells his disciples, there are great challenges there are great challenges, there are great demands upon you as disciples, and there are great rewards in this life and in the world to come. And by the way, anyone who tells you that the Christian life is only suffering and persecution, it's a distortion. Anyone who says it's all about prosperity and getting rich and being happy, it's also a distortion. It's oftentimes both at the same time. It's living in attention. And folks who have a hard time living in that tension, yes, are the ones oftentimes who fall into error and who fall into one form of bad teaching or another. But let's focus for a few minutes and end with not the two, but the one that gets the most attention. Here's the man who gets the one bag of gold. And he goes out, as our parable says, and he buries that gold. Now, burying money in the ancient world was considering a really smart thing to do. This was something that uh, you would do in order to secure, yes, secure the money. And why does the man do this? Because it's very interesting. He says the following. He says... He said, Master, I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. Yes, I was afraid, right? So here we have a question of fear that somehow stifles, right? Stewardship that keeps us really from, you might say, fulfilling the potential that God has given for us, to us, to each one of us, right? Stifling creativity, stifling maybe productivity, even stifling faithfulness. And why was this guy afraid? Right? And here we can, I, I think, just look at a few, look at a few, um, a few reasons. Um, remember that Jesus, um, I'll come back to that in a minute. 
So the, the, the man, obviously, his fear did it not stem from a distorted view of who the master was. And again, many of us have this distorted, you might say, view of who God is. Yes. Um, many of us actually don't have faith to believe that uh, what we do for the Lord will actually count or be rewarded. Many of us oftentimes think in times like, like times like these, like what we're living in now, that things are somehow just so overwhelming and uh, things are so huge that whatever we do or don't do doesn't count. So therefore, why bother? Yeah. Um, some of the saints are tired yeah, and become apathetic and somehow become worn out. Others become paralyzed because of trauma, right, or depression, not necessarily lazy in and of themselves. And if that's the case, then healing of that trauma and that depression is in order. The, Jesus said in Matthew 24, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. And as it does, whether it's in the end times or the times in which we live now, yes, there is a fear that uh, comes over people. And I think this is what all of us need to be aware of because it can lull us into inactivity or it can bring about, yes, uh, disastrous consequences. And that fear is in order to protect myself from all this bad stuff that's happening all around me, in order to protect my way of life, yes, or to safeguard my well-being, yes, I need to pull back. And in pulling back, right, and living out of this fear, Yes, it prevents us from living like Jesus, from giving out like Jesus, from caring about uh, what, ha what happens yeah, in the world around us or to people around us. We lose that compassion, you might say. We become hard and it becomes, you know, the certain, I need to keep make myself happy or I need to, um, in, in essence, just look after myself. I need to look after myself. And it's, it, you know, it doesn't help that our politicians and our advertisers and the 24-7 news cycle, yes, and even preachers, for one reason or another, yeah, keep promoting fear. Fear, fear. Sometimes politicians or others do it for, out of self-interest. Other times, fear is like something like an epidemic and sort of spreads like a wave throughout a community. But, you know, whatever, whatever the case, yes, 
this fear that leads to a refusal to give, our, give of, our, of ourselves or the refusal to take a risk. And here we're talking about a reasonable risk, yes, with what God has given us. Because after all, I better keep it for myself. I better keep it for my family. And I'm not just simply talking about money, right? Because who knows what's gonna happen? And we know, I'm not sure God will take care of us in the future, so I better look after myself. Um, or you know, we fear change, or we fear transformation. And um, all of this keeps us from living, I think, in a, uh, in a selfless way. I think Jesus is quite clear. You know, we will be judged according to our deeds and according to those things that we did not do. This should not make us afraid. We don't panic. Uh, we need to keep in mind that the parable is and full of joy and not only a warning. Yes, those who did what was in front of them, who did God's, the, who used their gifts or their resources um, to expand the, the kingdom of heaven, receive a reward. There's great joy, yes, in the world to come. Yeah, when the judge pronounces the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'd like to end with this. The war and the tragedy that's fallen upon this land for Jews and Arabs alike is in some ways it's um, not just horrible but it's just indescribable despite all the information that we have coming at us 24 hours a day. It's indescribable. And again, it can make us fearful, or we can see this as an opportunity, right? This is the Lord giving us an opportunity, yes, to be the presence of Jesus um, in whatever way that he directs us. And many people will say at times like this, but what should I do? What should I do? And we know people who spend a whole lifetime trying to figure out God's will and don't do much of anything because somehow God hasn't spoken or somehow God doesn't lead them. Well, you know the old saying, God doesn't drive a parked car or God doesn't steer a parked car. We need to, we need to get going and the Lord will direct us to do this thing or that thing. But the car has to leave the parking lot and it has to be put in drive. So instead of falling into some kind of self-absorption and spending years trying to figure out God's will for us, it's pretty clear for us in scripture. Yes, it's pretty clear for us in scripture. Yes, we take our gifts and our talents and we can apply them to this current situation and the word of God guides us 
And again, although we've read this passage before, we read it again, especially as it applies to us in this present day. And I'm going to finish by reading from Romans chapter 12. Yes. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's to the church. Now to the world. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. And again, Paul returns to this theme. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen? Amen. Now, you're going to say, but all of that isn't going to stop the war in Gaza. Maybe not. But our... The marching orders that Jesus gave us, yes, it's not only occupied till he comes, but to be faithful. We are not called to be successful. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.